Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Joe Porter. In the program this week, we take a close look at this weekend's rugby championship decider in Sydney as a young prospect makes his All Blacks debut and several veterans prepare for their last game on Australian soil. We hear from the New Zealand flanker Jerome Kano, who talks about his new book and chasing his All Blacks dream as a young American Samoan growing up in South Auckland. We discuss Olympic shot put champion Valerie Adams' decision to withdraw from this month's World Champs. We talk to Olympic runner Nick Willis about the latest doping claims to rock world athletics. We preview the Netball World Cup which starts this weekend and analyse the Silver Ferns' chances of resting back the title. And we talk to the New Zealand Rugby Sevens veteran DJ Forbes, who's stepping down as captain after almost a decade to boost his chances of making next year's Rio Olympics. The Manawatu wing Nehe Milner Scudder gets his first chance to cement a place in the All Blacks World Cup squad after being named to debut on the wing in Saturday's Rugby Championship decider against Australia in Sydney. After a standout Super Rugby season with runners-up the Hurricanes, 24-year-old Milner Scudder will start on the right wing, while his Hurricanes teammate Julian Savia makes his first start of the All Blacks season on the left wing. Sonny Bill Williams has replaced the injured Ma'a Nonu at second five, while Dan Carter returns at first five, and Ben Smith moves to fullback in place of Israel Dagg. 34 year-old captain Richie McCaw will make his 141st test appearance to equal the record set by former Ireland captain Brian O'Driscoll in a game that also doubles as the first match of the season's Bledisloe Cup. Both New Zealand and the Wallabies are unbeaten in this season's shortened tournament due to the World Cup and McCaw knows that's at the back of everyone's mind with just five weeks to go before the global tournament. Well, I love enough for better to keep Bledisloe in the cupboard, absolutely. Um, but it's been like that every year, you know, like... Uh, as I said, I still remember back how much it meant to the guys to win it back, and they didn't have it. And uh, yeah, put yourself in the Wallaby shoes, they'll be uh, desperate to get their hands on it. And yeah, that's what makes it a great, uh, great occasion, is that uh, it means so much to both teams, for dip, you know, perhaps because uh, a few of us uh, realised what it was like to not have it, and uh, you know, I guess the Wallabies in that uh, situation at the moment. But, um, I didn't want to give it back, you know, that's, that's the motivator every time and, uh, you know, whenever you do uh, hang out the boots and you still got on, we're pretty happy. That's five weeks to the World Cup, how are you guys feeling that you're tracking leading up to the event? Uh, well, I think we're in a reasonable spot, to be honest. Um, I, I think from a team point of view, you know, the team's not named, we've got 41 on the team and 41 doesn't go to 31 and... Yeah, there's a bit of uh, edge around the, the team about the guys that want to perform well to uh, to be in that spot, which is a good thing. Starting Saturday night and then next week, you know, there's an opportunity for everyone to, uh, you know, we want the team to perform well and obviously individuals within that. So we need to take another step and you know, there's an opportunity to do that.
It will be the last game in Australia for several senior All Blacks, including centre Conrad Smith, who holds a special place in his heart for Australian fans, who he describes as some of the best hecklers in the world. The veteran midfielder spoke to the media about why the Wallabies are the team he loves to hate, and how he'll never forget one of his first interactions with a partisan Sydney crowd. First, though, he touched on what the 27-20 win over the Springboks at Alice Park did for the All Blacks' confidence, and where they'd like to improve. All Black sides are good at um, looking past results and, and to our performance and you know if, if anything we've uh, been pretty critical of, of the way we played and you know there, there was a lot that we didn't do right um, but you know we, we're quick to acknowledge that it is a very tricky place to play and, and a tough place to win so we, we accepted that and um, you know it was a pat on the back but it was a pretty short one and uh, the rest of it was on the backside probably and um, you know and so we were pretty critical like, like I said of, of some of the things we've done and you know obviously the chance now to put right. What would you like to put right personally getting into this game? Um, yeah I, I felt I was a you know for myself a um, you know step off the pace and uh, so I, I don't know I'd like to obviously um, you know chance to, to build a relationship with the, with the guys I'm, I'm playing alongside and as a backline we'd um, you know, I'm sure we'd like to create a few more opportunities and, and, and take the opportunities that, that we um, do create for ourselves. It's probably something we all looked at and um, haven't quite done in, you know, in the tests we've had so far. Comrade, we obviously a number of All Blacks uh, you know, last season, you included. Um, it almost feels like a bit of a sort of a farewell tour in, in, in some senses. You obviously spoke last week about last test at Park. What were you missed about playing the Wallabies? Um, oh, I, I suppose just you know, players of games. There's just something um, special about them. You know, from when I, uh, you know, I grew up, when the whole apartheid thing meant, you know, we weren't playing South Australia. So Australia was the the team. You know, for me, was the biggest enemy and um, the team we love to hate. You know, if you put it like that. And yeah, I, I suppose obviously it's changed little. You know, I've said that before. Obviously, South Africa now um, are back, and you know, I sort of sense that and I've grown to realise that you know why they are the tr traditional rival but you know there it's a, it's a different rivalry with Australia and, and they'd be the first to say that themselves you know it's a, it's a you know they're our brothers across the ditch but we um, you know it's a unique rivalry and um, you know I've grown to enjoy the games um, a lot and everything that sort of comes with these games so yeah I, I suppose I'll something on this. Can you speak more about that unique rivalry? Because I know you, you guys get on fairly well with the spring box off the park, don't you? What's it like with the Wallabies? Um, no, I mean, you know, for, for myself personally, I, I still, uh, you know, I, I enjoy playing them and, and um, had, have good banter, particularly with the guys I've, I've played a, a lot alongside, you know, Adam Ashley Cooper, you know, I've played a lot of rugby against him and enjoy having a chat with him and, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I, 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 know, I suppose it's like with all sports when, you, when you're playing um, the Australians, it's, you know, there's plenty of niggle around the game and, and the supporters as well, you know, they love ribbing you, it's a little bit different when you're playing in Sydney than, than what you get in Joburg, but uh, yeah, I, I just think it's all part of it and it makes it enjoyable. Uh, yeah, I, w I will. Um, you know, it'll be nice to sit back and watch other people um, run around in the black jersey one day. But um, yeah, it's, it's certainly it's something I've enjoyed. Are their fans the most sort of fervent against you out of other nations? Uh, yeah, I mean to be honest, like playing, I, I don't. You don't realise it a, a lot, but I, I know one of my early tests um, when I was on on the bench, one of my few games, I, I was actually sat on the bench, and yeah, I've never been heckled quite like it. It was a Sydney game, and um, 
had long hair at the time, and yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, I'd just get a haircut, and <laughs> who are you, and yeah, just all sorts. And uh, I was I look back now and I laugh, and I know at the time it was quite intimidating. Conrad Smith speaking before this weekend's rugby championship decider. The All Blacks flanker and 2011 World Cup winner Jerome Kano will help New Zealand attempt to create history at this year's global tournament as they try to become the first back-to-back winners of the William Webb Ellis Trophy and the first team to win the World Cup three times. 32-year-old Kano has just released his book called My Story and he spoke to Radio New Zealand's 9 to Noon host Catherine Ryan about growing up in Papakura, about Auckland's fiercely competitive schoolboy first 15 competition and the influence the late Jerry Collins had on his life and career. Oh, I, lo- I loved growing up in Papakura. It was um, definitely quite humble. Um, really enjoyed uh, having the close-knit of um, friends and family around. You know, everything that I do right now, I really look back on living in Papakura and growing up in Papakura fond memories. What, what, does, what does it instill? What are the community uh, that you grew up around instill in you that still stays? Obviously, we uh, what we had there, there weren't really many opportunities to excel or... Um, to go on, um, I was I was one of the lucky few that really kicked on and uh, was able to get an opportunity outside of Papakura to excel in school and, and in sports and uh, a few other um, members of my neighbourhood and a few friends from Papakura were able to do that too and um, you know the opportunities that we get now and um, what I'm blessed with here with, with uh, rugby is uh, Definitely a far cry from what I had uh, back in Papakura. The role of your parents, we were just saying, um, I was discussing the pronunciation of your surname, uh, whether it's Kano or Kaino. Yes. Uh, tell me about your folks. Yeah, my um, my dad says Kano and my mum says Kaino. So um, <laughs> I asked them, because this is quite a frequently asked question yeah. by um, everyone, and I asked mum and dad, and they said uh, they're not too bothered. It just depends on how you um, pronounce your vowels. Does it sum them up a bit though that they can't they can't settle on a on a, an agreed position? <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think so. And um, always I ask them if it's a if it's actually a Samoan last name, and dad doesn't think it's a Samoan last name. I think it's uh, part Japanese or something. Interesting. But it dates quite far back. I don't think you liked St Kent's at first, did you? What was the experience like when you first arrived? Oh, it was definitely different to what I was used to. Um, coming from Papakura, I didn't really like structure too much. And going to St Kent's, there was a there was a definitely an element of um, seriousness. You know, you couldn't really muck around. You're there to learn. You're you're there at school. And how I was at Papakura definitely wasn't that. I used to muck around a lot. And um, the first couple of weeks was a struggle for me. I thought, you know, no, I'm not really a, a structured person. I don't really like to sit here and and. And listen in class, but as times as as more time I went uh, spent at St Kent, so I, I grew to love it, and I was like, man, this is a different opportunity to to what my other mates are getting, and I I need to take it, and maybe this is good for me. It was pretty competitive even then. I know the Afua brothers were there as well. Uh, yeah, you know, you started right, climbing up the ran- ranking St Kent's in nineteen uh, ninety uh, nine, yeah, uh, and then beat Kings in that final in two thousand and one. What, what make of it now though there's been a lot of controversy about player poaching a lot of controversy about keeping guys back to play an extra year and now we're seeing schoolboy rugby televised we're seeing yep. rankings of the top 200 on the web what's your observation yep. of that oh it's a it's really competitive at the moment and um, especially having uh, having it broadcasted on tv it just lifts that level of competition but um I don't like using that word poaching because it's uh, for me it's it's a great opportunity for kids who don't have the opportunity to to be able to excel in those areas and um, 
And, you know, those kids get asked if they want to take the opportunity and if they, them and their families really love it. And then uh, I wouldn't, I don't really like to use the, the term poaching. Don't patronise them, yeah? Yeah, I I, I think it's uh, it's someone in a position who, where they could help and they're giving a, a kid an opportunity to, to help help them and their families. Uh, success comes pretty quickly. You made the under-21 team around 2003, then Auckland <clears> Blues, <throat> and then an all-black all in short succession. And with that kind of elevation, there's a lot of pressure. Yep. There's someone we should mention here, and he's on a lot of rugby people's minds uh, right now, as his, as his daughter, uh, and that's Jerry Collins. And he was yep. a pretty important figure to you and I think a, a lot of new players uh, coming into the side. Tell me about yep. his influence. Oh, he was huge for me going into the All Blacks. Um, my first tour, 2004, he he was one of the senior players who took me under his wing and um, sort of kind of showed me the way um, the All, Black, All Blacks do things. And obviously playing in the same position, I used to always try and model my game or the way I played around what he did. And I really looked up to him and um, he did that for a few, few years and... Um, the years following that tour, I didn't get selected in the team, but he would always keep in touch and, and see how I was going. And and that's how he was, and that's how he was as a person. He would always um, be communicating with the younger players on not just rugby, but how, how things are off the field. And he was, a, he was a real family man. The news of this terrible accident that takes his life, takes his wife's life, leaves his baby daughter an orphan, it's just... Uh, it must have just... Affected everybody who knew him. It must have affected you. Yeah, I um, I was quite shocked when I f- first heard it, and um, uh, I was reading on the on the net uh, the reports, and I didn't really want to believe it at first. I I thought it would just be uh, tabloids or just people making rumours on uh, on the net. But then uh, once it was confirmed, uh, yeah, still took a while to, to sink in because the way Jerry lived and the way he was around us boys it's um he was a larger than life um personality and um someone who lived the way he did you you always thought he was quite bulletproof you know you always thought Jerry would be around and you always thought that smile would always be around and then um to be hit with that kind of news you, you know you find it hard to believe and um and you saw the the impact that he had in his community out in Porirua, um what he did, what he, what he did in his community, and how how many people he affected. It uh, yeah, it was hard to take. Jerome Kano speaking to Nine to Noon's Catherine Ryan. New Zealand's double Olympic shot put champion Valerie Adams won't defend her title at this month's World Championships in Beijing, though she still has her eye on defending her Olympic title next year. Adams manager Nick Cowan told Morning Report's Susie Ferguson the Olympian's decision to withdraw from the World Champs was difficult, but winning gold in Rio is the ultimate goal. He says Adams' recovery from shoulder and elbow surgery is taking longer than expected. It's taken a bit longer um, than than she thought and, and that we we all thought um, and saying that it, I guess it doesn't come as a surprise it was a fairly significant surgery that she had on her elbow and we did know that there was going to be a bit of a risk this year that uh, it would be problematic getting back to 100% form but we we made the decision to press on um, and, and compete this season because we needed to actually get some sticks in the sand and make some assessments We've got some real clarity now, um, and, and that's where that's led to the decision to um, come home and get ready for next year.
a real blow, though, missing the world champs. I mean, this is one of the real big ones, isn't it? Not an easy decision for her at all. Um, she's, a, as we all know, a fierce uh, competitor and does not give up easily and, in fact, pretty much doesn't give up. Um, so it was a, a big thought process for her and a big decision to withdraw, but um, she has got the, the main prize on her eye and that is uh, defending her Olympic title next year. Now, she came from behind, well, she came behind the winner in several meetings now. Her streak of winning, which has been phenomenal, has been broken. And at the Diamond League meeting about three weeks ago was when this happened. Psychologically, how is she doing at this when she's not number one? It's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm getting asked that, uh, you know, in all, all walks of life on a regular basis. And look, she's good. She's feeling really good. Uh, like I said before, She's got real clarity uh, in terms of what's required to get back to 100% now. Um, you know, six, six to seven weeks ago, she probably didn't have that clarity, and, and it was tough, and it was a hard road for her having to front up to these competitors that she'd dominated for so long. But she's come out of that now, and she's really strong and feeling very positive um, about next year. But we've just got to get on and deal to the rehab and deal to to the issues, you know, in terms of getting her back to 100% and then, um, you know, go forth and get ready. This is the gamble, though, isn't it? To give up on the world champs and to put your eggs in the basket of the Olympics. There's one year to go. Is she going to be fit, do you think? Uh, absolutely. Um, we're, we're very confident. We're feeling very good uh, about this decision and we're feeling very good about next year. Um, if you'd asked me the same question you know, six months leading into this year, I, I probably would have been hesitant. Um, but but I can tell you now, um, she, we, we, we've got it sorted in terms of what we need to do, but we just now need to do it. And um, so we're feeling good. And, and it's not insignificant, the decision today um, at all, but in the context of uh, what, what she wants to achieve and, and what I guess we as New Zealanders want her to achieve next year, this is absolutely the right decision. While Adam's withdrawal is unfortunate, the athletics world has been hit by much more damaging news this week with widespread claims of doping emerging and the New Zealand runner Nick Willis says he's witnessed dodgy actions from his track competitors once or twice in his career and even thought of giving up over it. The Olympic silver medalist comments come in the wake of reports that a third of blood tests from endurance runners at World and Olympic Games between the years 2001 and 2012 were suspicious. Willis says widespread doping is something he and other clean competitors have had to deal with for years, and he told sports reporter Stephen Houston that he even considered giving up athletics 10 years ago because of drug cheats. Before I even really got going, 2005 at the Helsinki World Championships, where later on we found out two of the three medalists had officially tested positive, and I suspect many others in that race were probably also doping as well and I just missed out on the final by a fraction of a second so I was having to watch from the stands which is never a fun experience and that was actually my very first summer as a professional as a young 22 year old I was like is it really worth it and I went out and bought a skateboard and went skating around the streets of Helsinki and then I had a really bad slam smashing my back against the wall and I, that woke me up pretty cold and said hey this is a privilege that you have this unique opportunity Nick and the world is like this and you've got to be I guess, an example to, to fight through this. How frustrating as an athlete is, is all of this? What sort of keeps you going then, knowing that there is such a, or seemingly, a large portion of your competitors will be cheating? 
ultimately most of us came up never really anticipating to make it to this level. We did it because we, we kept on improving and you got addicted to that high that came when you ran a new personal best or you just loved the opportunities that kept on coming. You got to leave your hometown to go to the national champs. Maybe you got to go to Australia and now you're traveling the world and many of those opportunities are still available for me regardless of whether people are cheating around me or not. And I guess I'm one of the fortunate few that still has the ability to even in spite of all of the um, alleged cheating going on or stuff that I've heard as well that I can still um, compete with and sometimes beat these guys um, when I have a very good day. Now, that's not every week, but uh, um, my theory is that I can get up to a really good peak once or twice a year and, and be just as good as these guys. So I guess that's what keeps me going. Do you think it's any worse now than what it was back in, then, 2005 or even earlier? No, absolutely not. I actually do believe it has gotten better, at least from a, the numbers um, standpoint. And this data that has been released actually says that it gets mentioned as a, a holistic view from 2001 until now. But if you look at the data more closely, it's actually regressed significantly since 2009. Only 70 out of the 700 suspected suspicious results um, actually came through then. In 2009 is when the blood passport system for trying to catch people in another method um, has, has come into the fore. So I do think that it is having some effect, but obviously many are still finding ways to to skirt around the edges of the system, but perhaps not quite the same level of blatant cheating. What they're having to do now, allegedly, is microdosing, where they take smaller doses more frequently as opposed to these large, preferable amounts um, less often. So how overt is it? Overt in the sense of uh, how that, obvious that, as it is? Oh, yeah, exactly. To maybe yourselves or, or your other competitors that aren't involved. Well, seldomly do I or any of my peers actually witness anything specific. Perhaps um, once or twice in my career, I've, I've seen something dodgy look like it's been placed out of one of my competitors' hands, a vial or something that looks as such into the crack of a wall before a race, and perhaps that was illegal, or maybe that was something they were allowed to take. You never know. But by and large, it's just hearsay, and it's a lot of unfortunate um, gossiping and rumoring that goes around, but it all adds up, and then all this sort of information that comes out confirms what you suspect. And by and large, it comes from people within groups. You get Peter Snells, you get John Walkers, you get Herb Elliott, you get freak athletes once in a generation from all over the globe. But when you get four or five or six of these athletes all in the same year or a couple of years, all coming from the same coach, then it's just too good to be true. And the the odds of those of that happening is, is pretty far-fetched, in my opinion. So how much talk is there amongst your peers about the whole doping scenario? Well, unfortunately, I guess unfortunately that it disturbs what we do, but I guess fortunate in the sense that we have a means of sharing intel, but it becomes the number one topic of conversation when we're at track meets, waiting around in hotels for a couple of days before our races, and that's where it becomes a little more obvious of those who are participating in that conversation they're the ones that are really passionate against it. And those that are avoiding being in that conversation, they get a bit squirmy and they don't want to be sitting at the table when these topics come up because it's sort of a dark little secret perhaps in their lives and so it's not really somewhere they want to be around. Nick Willis speaking with Stephen Hewson. And you're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport.
The Netball World Cup gets underway in Sydney this week, starting on Friday. In contrast to previous World Cups, when New Zealand was almost guaranteed to make the final, some are wondering whether the Silver Ferns will even get that far this year. Bridget Tunnicliffe reports. For the Silver Ferns, beating Australia is like an obsession. You can understand why when you look at the history between the sides. New Zealand and the Australian Diamonds have been involved in five of the previous six World Cup Grand Finals, with no more than four goals separating them. But former Australian great Liz Ellis doesn't believe this year's tournament is going to be so predictable. We also need a strong England, a strong Jamaica, uh, and another team outside that, that big four to start to step up and challenge. So... From that point of view, I actually think the World Cup's exciting because it's not going to be, I don't think, Australia and New Zealand in the final. While many commentators believe England will make a statement at the World Cup, Alice believes Jamaica is dangerous, with former Australian coach Jill McIntosh now at the helm. Despite the threats they and New Zealand pose, Alice says Australia are clear favourites given their record over the past 18 months. After a nine-game losing streak to Australia, the Silver Ferns coach Waitamanu made some bold changes to his squad picked for the World Cup. Former Silver Ferns player and coach Yvonne Willering says at the very least New Zealand is now more unpredictable. Because in the past it was always a known top seven, whereas now we're not quite sure who's going to take the court in that position. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's still, you know, you can say it's risky because, um, you know, it's still how the players will compete uh, in, in the pressure situation. Yvonne Willering says new shooters Bailey Mess and Malia Paseka have added an exciting dimension to the attacking end, but the overall shooting accuracy of the Ferns is a concern. She says it's hard to gauge where they are at based on recent one-sided games against Fiji and South Africa. Liz Ellis says the changes will force the Diamonds to reassess the Silver Ferns. The selectors have gone out on a limb, but a pretty good limb, and picked on current form rather than reputation. And to a degree, that tends to hold teams in good stead when you pick players who are currently playing well. I guess the big question mark is how much those players can handle the big occasion. And that's really what's going to be tested. Given New Zealand has lost their last five clashes with Australia by an average of 12 goals, doubt lingers about whether there's too much ground to cover in time for the sport's pinnacle event. Of the 13 World Cups played since 1963, Australia have pipped the Silver Ferns seven times. Blinda Colling was playing the last time New Zealand tasted World Cup glory in 2003 and says the Ferns can't be written off. The World Champs tournament, anything can happen and it's a little bit about survival of the fittest. Injuries can happen um, and on the day it's just about who performs the best. You know, the World Cup is just such a different tournament and I would definitely not count them out. The Silver Ferns open their campaign against Barbados this evening, but the most telling test will come on Sunday when they meet Australia in pool play. For Morning Report, Bridget Tunnicliffe. DJ Forbes has announced he's stepping down as captain of the New Zealand Rugby Sevens team to focus on making it to the Rio Olympics next year. Forbes has captained the side since 2006 and won six Sevens World Series titles, as well as Commonwealth Gold at New Delhi in 2010 and Silver at Glasgow last year. The 33-year-old says he came to the decision after months of consideration and reflection with New Zealand Sevens coach Gordon Titchens. An injury to his foot during this year's Wellington Sevens is what Forbes says triggered the thought. He spoke to media about coming to his decision. My body is probably uh, the, the key behind the uh, majority of my decision. Um, I've had a good run, but then I've had a fair, fair share of knocks along the way, and that's rugby. And I guess um, you know, sort of come to the realisation that um, you know, my body doesn't bounce back as fast as I would, I would like it or used to. Uh, so this way, you know, I'm, I'm not compromising anyone's uh, 
integrity or anyone's decision. It's, it's uh, about me just trying to get my body to 100% and, and giving it you know, uh, a, a good nudge to hopefully enjoy what could be my last season of International 7. But how to roll it means Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, I'm, you know, I'm still passionate about what I do. Um, and that's why I'm still doing it at my age. And everyone knows the, the kind of kind of ship uh, Titch steers and um, you know my body's going through a lot um, and, and I guess for me it's just a, a matter of I can grip my teeth and keep doing it but you know in doing that you know I'm, I'm obviously uh, um, you know questioning myself a little bit further down the track so you know this way it just gives me a great opportunity to really focus on me and just doing me and uh, giving me the best shot for the Olympics. How tough do you think it is going to be to make this team for real? Oh it's, it's going to be extremely tough you know I mean in the ideal world if the team was going tomorrow I would think that I'd be definitely in their mix um, but you know uh, first things first as far as I'm concerned and we've got a big world series to try some new things and um, you know, put some new things in place and, and, and try the old stuff and, and see what works and uh, we all know um, the competition that's going to be coming across from the 15s players but you know that's exciting for us and a lot of these boys I've played with before and they've played with us so um, there's no there's no malice there um, but you know like any proud New Zealander we just want the best 12 guys to be there and you know, I want to do, uh, do it my way to make sure that I'm I guess warranting my, my selection. You've been in the game for a while 2006 you first joined the side How how much has the game changed, especially with that Olympics draw card? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's probably probably it. Like, uh, I thought I had a pretty good run, and I was, uh, you know, hoping I could bow out after 10 years. But you know, there's a massive carrot now at the end of it, and um, you could already see the, the resources that other countries are putting into it, and I guess the, the I guess the um, the pedigree of um, the players that are putting their hand up, you know, to come and you know give Olympics a crack. So um, it's massive for our sport, and obviously uh, part of my decision is, is making sure I could, you know, uh, I guess be a part of the transition for the next captain. Um, it's not about, uh, not all about the Olympics, you know, we've still got a, a few more years or sevens to go after that, so, you know, hopefully I can leave the team in, in good stead um, after, hopefully, next year. When in the release it talks a bit about that you didn't want to sort of be selected because you were the captain, is that a bit of a part as well, that you didn't want to have that hanging over you, that it might, I guess, make you... Ch- put you in the team when perhaps you hadn't earned it? Yeah, well, um, you know, I'd like to think I've definitely earned my merits you know, up until today. Um, and, and this way, it's just, it's just making it clear, I guess, you know, um, more so you know, for me than, than the general public um, or, or my peers. It's just that you know, I want to warrant my own selection and, you know, um, being in the Olympics and the first time at that level and I hear about, you know, like I said, at the gala dinner, hearing all the Olympians that have been there and what it takes to be a part of it. Um, like I said, I, I don't want to compromise anything and I want to make sure that, you know, if I do get to um, book a ticket to Rio, that, you know, I've done everything I can and I'm, I'm worthy of my, my selection. How strange will it be being in the team but not being captain? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I mean, it'll be obviously a, a little bit airy. Um, when I was talking to senior players, you know, there was the odd conversation about, you know, the new captain talking and the boys may be looking at me every now and then thinking, am I going to say anything? But, you know, I mean, um, you, you can look at, you know, the, I guess the All Black 15s you set up and you've got some experience there and, um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, that captain is, uh, is rotated every now and then so there might be opportunities where I'm still asked to, to lead the team. So um, I think for me personally um, and for the new guys, the younger guys coming through, you know, I've always known that that's part of my job to, you know, share my experiences, share my knowledge and, and make sure that I can give these young boys or the, the next captain I guess the best chance of, of doing his, his job the best he can. The outgoing New Zealand Sevens captain, DJ Forbes. His replacement as skipper will be announced by Gordon Titchens in the coming weeks. And that's the show for this week. Feedback is welcome via Twitter, Facebook or email sport at radionz.co.nz. We'll be back with the next web-only extra time show next week. I'm Joe Porter. Bye for now. Thank you. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.